Hello, welcome back to Around Serie A in 20 Days. My name's Michael Nimmo, as always. Apologies again for the kind of tardiness that I have in putting up these podcasts. Um, yeah, I've been busy. Hopefully, though, pretty soon I'll be less busy, so I'll be able to record all of these episodes and put them out with a bit more frequency. The only fly being in the ointment of that is that on Sunday I'm going to Kuwait for the rest of the summer, and I don't really know what the internet connection's like there. Hopefully it's good, but I'm getting my excuses in early. But please, please have patience. I will record and upload the episodes as quickly as I possibly can. So, here's the most recent episode. The chapter is when I went to see Napoli. Have fun and take care. Bye-bye. Southern Hospitality. My trip down to Naples to watch Napoli play Milan. See Naples before you die, they say. After you've gazed out over the city and the bay, the idea is that there's nothing left to see in life. Despite having lived in Italy since 2008, I'd never actually been down to the Amalfi Coast, or seen Mount Vesuvius's slopes in person. Almost immediately upon my arrival here, all those moons and governments ago, I was told that if I should ever visit Naples, I should be ultra careful. It had seemed that the train station in Naples in its immediate area is a hotbed for criminal activity. One student told me that he would take off his chain and wedding ring while still on the train so as not to become a target of ne'er-do-wells outside the train station. Another told me that if someone asked me the time, I shouldn't tell them. This presented a problem, though. If someone asked me the time and I ignored them, well, that'd be pretty rude, and against my cultural DNA. Meanwhile, if I tried to explain that I didn't understand their request, that'd be as bad as looking at my watch, no? Surely advertising that you're not from there makes you just as appealing a target as someone with a watch. In any case, I'm tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed and have a pasty complexion, so it wouldn't require a Sherlock-esque level of deduction to understand that I'm not a local. In the days before my trip south, all of the warnings to be careful, just as when I went to Rome, did nothing to put my mind at ease. Plus, some years ago, I watched a film called Gomorrah, about the local mafia, the Camorra, which was a fairly harrowing watch, and while on the train down, its contents resurfaced in my mind like a poorly anchored corpse in a swamp. I wasn't going to trifle with any mafiosi, though, just to watch football. Still, before leaving home, I hoped that my visiting Naples and dying wouldn't have anything in relation. In the days before I went, I felt both surprised and old. The latter because I had somehow contrived to pull a muscle in my back, making almost every movement painful, which significantly increased the number of old man noises. Ooh, ah, eeh. I made while sitting down and standing up. This also rather surprised me, as I wasn't aware that I had any muscles anywhere. The days of being alive, Peter Pan, are over, it seems. I must add that the Neapolitans I know are fairly dismissive of all the doom and gloom that non-locals heap on the city. While acknowledging that the city has problems, they reject the idea that Naples is excessively more dangerous than other cities. A few years ago, Ezekiel Pocho Lavezzi's girlfriend was robbed in the city, the thieves getting away with her Rolex. 
Needless to say, she was none too pleased, taking to Twitter the knee-jerk reaction sharer of these halcyon times to brand Naples a shitty city. I asked to Partenope, more on whom later, what they thought about the whole episode. First of all, Fabrizio. It can happen in any big city to any famous person. The other day, Johan Juru, the Hamburg defender and ex-Arsenal player, had his €100,000 watch stolen in Germany. These things happen, unfortunately. But she reacted ignorantly, and maybe a little stupidly, taking it out on the city. She recently got robbed in Paris too, now Lovetsi plays for Paris Saint-Germain, but I don't think she'll start complaining about Parisians. And then Luigi told me, Unfortunately, I think it's normal, and happens everywhere now, both in Italy and in the world, particularly against those who have money. I don't want to sound like I'm justifying an act that I do condemn, but bearing in mind the severe economic crisis that we're struggling through now, someone who's going to rob another person will rob someone with loads of money. And in this case, she has loads of money. Plus, a few weeks ago, their house got burgled in Paris. So if you're the glamorous girlfriend of a star player for the only team in town, people will know your face. And if you're all of the above, everyone knows you'll be minted. After she had called the city shit, the Napoli president, Aurelio De Laurentiis, suggested her outburst was imprudent, and added, Naples isn't a violent city, and if anything, the capital of crime is Rome. And certainly, in times like these, if you drive around in luxury cars wearing expensive watches, it shows that you haven't become Neapolitan enough. Of course, being robbed would be a horrible experience to go through, but maybe De Laurentiis had a point. In a period where unemployment is at a record high, people still need to eat. It's a step that most of us wouldn't take, but if you're desperate, your horizons shrink to the extent that was once unimaginable could become less unpalatable. That said, if you're listening to this podcast and have absolutely no intention to buy the book, shame on you. Just to show that not all Neapolitans are thieving gits, just as not all French people like cheese, and not all that glitters is gold, at the tail end of 2008, Marek Hamsik, the Slovakian beau of Napoli, had his €25,000 Rolex watch stolen near the stadium. Threatened with a gun, he sensibly handed over his watch the robbery of which infuriated locals and fans. Two weeks later, the watch was handed into a police station while he was on holiday, apparently having been tracked down by said infuriated fans. A happy ending, although he has been robbed another couple of times since then. Somewhat paradoxically, while Naples has a dangerous reputation, southerners as a whole are said to be very open and friendly. Following this logic, the people I would meet should have smiled and inquired about my family's health while robbing me at gunpoint. Thankfully, my experience of the locals was entirely positive. A Neapolitan in Genoa, Anna Chiara, had put me in touch with some people who have season tickets for the Corva B, one of the homestands, and they were lovely, inclusive and very helpful. So, Nicola, Valentina, Fabrizio, Luigi and Diego, thank you. Aptly enough, Valentina and Fabrizio's surname is Napoli, so who better to start asking what the team means to the fans than them? Although rather counterintuitively, Napoli isn't a typical surname from Naples, but that's by the by. First of all, Fabrizio. Napoli isn't only a football team. It's a part of me, my family and my culture. It's a way for me to communicate with my dad and to make me feel connected to my roots and my city, 
which can be both terrible and fantastic at the same time. I'm Neapolitan because I support Napoli. I'm proud because, despite not having won much in our history, for 90 years we've always been an important club, capable of stirring up emotions and giving drama to everyone, not only to our fans. Napoli isn't a team like any other, because Naples isn't a city like any other. Valentina told me this. When Napoli plays, when Napoli plays, the city stops. It's like the night before New Year's Eve, the calm before the storm. It's a countdown. You check your watch as the minutes pass, and you wait for the rumble of a goal. And Luigi added. Something that I always tell my partner is that my priorities, Napoli is first, my mum is second, and that third place is open for her to fight for. Naples is at the foot of Mount Vesuvius the dormant volcano which famously destroyed the Roman towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum. It last erupted in 1944, and these days 600,000 people live in the city's red zone, i.e. the area most at risk in case of eruption. Presumably, living in the shadow of what is basically a massively ticking time bomb must have an effect on the population's psychology. To find out, I asked Nicola. Sure, living in the shadow of Vesuvius isn't easy. And you know you can't relax, but it's a part of us, of being Neapolitan. From one moment to the next, our lives could end just like that. But if you stop and think about all those negatives, then you won't live. So our reaction is to take one day at a time, thinking about all of the good in our lives. Then, when we admire Vesuvius looking down on us from up there, we just see a beautiful landscape or a postcard to send to the rest of the world. And we think our city is the most beautiful in the world, thanks to it. And then I asked Anna Chiara. I don't think it does affect our daily mentality. In my opinion, we think of it just like we do the sea. It's an element of the landscape that characterises our city and makes us famous. Of course, if you think about it rationally, then you know it could be lethal. But during the day, you don't stop to think of it that way. You think of its enormity and power, but it's always there and doesn't change your day. Or maybe it's so subconscious that we don't notice anymore. I think the way we Neapolitans enjoy our lives comes more from our history and from the countless foreign powers that have taken turns to rule the city. Everyone who has held power here has left us something, whether it's our language, cuisine or way of being. These rulers eventually moved on, but the city was always there, and poverty and hunger forced us to get by every day. Stressing out about Vesuvius is a waste of time, because everything else is temporary, but Naples is permanent. Over the centuries, Naples has been under the control of Greeks, Romans, Spanish and French, to name but a few. Two of Italy's stereotypes hail from Naples, as both pizzas and mandolins originate from that part of the country. Meanwhile, for any history trivia buffs out there, the first railway line in Italy was built in Naples, despite the Catholic Church's fear that dark tunnels could pose a threat to morality. Regarding what Anna Chiara said about those foreign powers' influences on the city, the language really stuck out for me. Dialects are quite common in Italy, and I can usually understand a wee bit of them just by listening out for any Italian words that sneak into them. Case in point, when I went to see Hellas Verona, while standing outside the pub, Davide, my interviewee there, asked his friend, uh, che ora qualcosa qualcosa, uh, which would be what time, blah blah, blah blah blah. Checking my watch, I told him, at which he asked me incredulously if I spoke Veronese. 
No, of course I don't. But if you start a question with que hora, which is what time, it's likely to end with, is it? But Neapolitan is no longer technically a dialect. UNESCO now recognises it as a bona fide language. Their accent is quite unlike that which I hear on a day-to-day -day basis up in Genoa, and I'm afraid that if you wanted a taste of Neapolitan, I could only reply, and I apologise now, I'm going to murder this, Nusakaja de Pifana Esempio, which would more or less translate as, I don't know what example to give. Neapolitan was so common in the past that it was used in court papers, while in 1799, Eleonora Fonseca Pimentel, a poet and journalist who was destined for the gallows, called for it to be used in speeches, to spread civic instruction to that section of the population which has no other language. Through a combination of the strong accents and the use of Neapolitan, everyone around me might as well have been talking in Japanese for all I could understand. A most unusual sensation. Speaking of most unusual, now would be the time to talk about San Gennaro, or Saint Januarius, if you like your saint's names anglicised. He's the patron saint of Naples, and three times a year, blood which is said to have been taken from his martyred body liquefies. It's stored in the cathedral, and seeing as he died in 305 AD, is pretty dry. But, lo and behold, it turns into liquid. It's a miracle. That's what the believers say, at least. When this happens, which it almost always does, it's said to augur well for the city. Pesky doubters and scientists poo-poo the miraculousness of it all, though, and claim it's some kind of trick, but St. Alphonsus Liguori had the following strong words for them. Some heretics have endeavoured to throw a doubt upon its genuineness by frivolous and incoherent explanations, but no one can deny the effect to be miraculous unless he be prepared to question the evidence of his senses. I guess old St. Alphonsus thought that the sun rose out of the earth before crashing back into it in the evening too, but let's all just thank goodness he's not around these days to see the witchery employed in telephones. I hear the voice, but can't see the person. What devilry is this? And now, from one faith to another. On the day of the match, I arrived in Naples, and after finding my hotel, I set out to meet Nicola and Valentina. We'd organised to meet at six o'clock, and seeing as the game started at quarter to nine, I figured we might head to a pub first for some fortifying drinks. I was mistaken in this belief, and so more than two hours before the game, I was already in my seat in the stadium. I say in my seat, but I was nowhere near the seat advertised on my ticket. In five years of watching football here, I don't think I've ever sat in the seat that was designated as mine, although I may have done so by chance. People here just don't get hung up on that kind of thing, and having asked people to shift themselves when they're sitting in my seat on the train, I can only imagine the incredulous look I'd get if I did the same thing in a football stadium. Everyone I was introduced to was very friendly, and to be honest I felt a bit like a zoo animal. People would look at me and practice their English on me, which wasn't a problem, but I refused offers of food in case it blunted my feral survival instincts. Football supporters can be a superstitious lot. Whether it's always wearing the same socks, taking the same route to the stadium, or whatever their quirk may be, many folk seem to think that their actions may impact on what two groups of strangers will do in the future. It's as irrational as the fact that Sir Isaac Newton was devoutly religious, a man of science and reason, but one who also firmly believed that Christ would come again. My friend Mauro, while not quite matching Newton, is prone to a bit of superstition. 
He's happy to clink glasses together on match days, but two hours before games, the police demand that drinks be served in plastic cups, so the glasses are taken away. And heaven forfend that you try to clink plastic cups in his presence. This, he insists, brings Sviga bad luck, and we don't want that. From observing him, the only way to counter this is to grab your balls, swear, spit, and smoke a cigarette, but not necessarily all at the same time. Rather than clinking, you simply extend your pinky finger and touch the other person's. We may be superstitious to the point of paranoia, but we're not so uncivilised that we don't toast each other's drinks. Carrying on this theme of pre-match ritual, at 20 past 7, Valentina told me she'd go to the bathroom in 10 minutes. I didn't question why she wouldn't just go immediately, but I assumed that she had a clockwork bladder. She then told me that before a match, at 7.30 she always goes to the bathroom. Whether she's at the San Paolo or watching it on TV, half past seven is toilet time. Not one to question other people's idiosyncrasies, especially when I don't really know them, I simply said that I hoped it'd have the desired effect. Società Sportiva Calcio Napoli, or just Napoli if you prefer, was founded in 1926. In 2004 it went bankrupt and was refounded by the film producer Aurelio De Laurentiis. Due to the bankruptcy, they were placed in Serie C1, the third tier of the Italian league system, but they weren't away for too long. They're estimated to be the fourth most supported team in Italy, and Naples is very much a one-team town. They're also one of the only five clubs to have won the domestic double in Italy. The colours are sky blue and white, and they wear them while they run around the Stadio San Paolo, another relic from Italia 90. It stood there before that, but was renovated for the World Cup. The team's mascot is a donkey, which in Neapolitan is known as Chucho, and like so many other teams, their colours lend them their nickname of the Azzurri, while once again a Greek influence rears up with the nickname Parthenopei. Parthenope was one of the sirens in Greek mythology, who were said to lure sailors to their doom in the Gulf of Naples. Greek sailors established a port with the same name nearby in the 9th century, and the rest, as they say, is history. Chances are, if Napoli rings the bell for you, it's due to one man, Diego Armando Maradona. As Luigi told me, Ah, oh, I reckon that whichever Neapolitan you ask, they'll always tell you that Maradona was their favourite player. He's much more than just a player to us. He's a father, a myth. A god come down from heaven and rolled down socks and a sky blue top. His wee feet led us to the peak of Italy and made us feel invincible. Being born in 1983, I only saw him play live a few times, but I know all of his games, all of his chances and all of his interviews. And Valentina added, Massimo Cripa, Ciro Ferrara, Lavezzi, Cavani, Hamsik, they were all great, but none were better than Diego, the best of all time. His record-breaking transfer in 1984 set the wheels in motion for Napoli to win their first Scudetto three years later, the year in which they also won the Coppa Italia. No team so far south on the mainland had ever won the championship before, and Maradona became a legend. They won their second, and up until my trip, last Scudetto in 1990, one year after lifting the UEFA Cup. Following that, they went on a gradual slide downhill, culminating in only winning three matches all season in 1997-98, dooming them to Serie B. They then yo-yoed back up and down before the horrendous costs of failure caught up with them and they were declared bankrupt. 
All the while that they were down in the doldrums, their fans turned out in number, breaking the Sericiono attendance record when 61,000 of them turned up for a match against local rivals Avellino. Since those dark days, they've worked their way through the leagues, and in 2007, were back in Serie A. In 2012, they won the Coppa Italia again, defeating Juventus, and in the last few years, qualified for the Champions League, although in the 2013-14 season, despite being drawn in a group with Arsenal and Borussia Dortmund, it's possible you didn't see them. See, or not as the case may be, their Champions League strip was a god-awful camouflage affair, insulting the eyes of any soul unfortunate enough to glimpse them scampering about in it. Personally, at least, it galled when compared with the regular sky-blue colours of Napoli that are so visually pleasing. This is modern football, though. The obsession of squeezing money out of gullible punters for terrible strips that have a shelf life of nine months, or in this case, only three months. As a divine punishment for this fashion faux pas, even though they finished the group stage with 12 points, they finished third on goal difference, so were relegated down to the Europa League and Thursday night European football. In 2012, the man helping them achieve their goals in Serie A was the Uruguayan striker Edinson Cavani. He rattled in 29 strikes in the 2012-13 season, getting Napoli a runners-up position in the league, and himself a move to the money-ain't-a-thing Paris Saint-Germain. He went to the gazillionaire Parisians for an obscene £57 million, giving the new mister, Rafa Benitez, the money to buy a number of new players. Gonzalo Higain, Raul Albiol, Jose Callejon, Therese Mertens and Pepe Reina all arrived during the summer transfer market, and I was interested to know what the locals thought of these changes. Luigi told me this. When Mazzari, the ex-coach, went, I wasn't happy because he'd done a lot for us and had given us a winning mentality, although I didn't like how he left. When Benitez was announced, I was really pleased, and I'm still positive about it. I'm not so keen on his defensive organisation, though. We concede too many goals and the team's often too stretched. The season's not gone quite as well as we'd expected, but we're in the final of the Coppa Italia and might be able to do well in the Europa League, and cups are Benitez's speciality after all. Then Valentina chipped in with, We're going through a radical change of game and mentality, and I don't think we'll be able to get an idea of how successful it is in the short term. The first year is all about breaking it in, experiments and tests. We have a really strong attack, but the old problems are still there. Both of the last two transfer windows were really poor in terms of signing new defenders, and it's there that we have the biggest need. Before the game, Nicola and Diego had told me to look out for the cheerleaders. Sure enough, they trotted out pre-match to jump and shake their pom-poms, but from up in the stand it was difficult to see them too well. Valentina wasn't much of a fan of them, explaining that they were indicative of President De Laurentiis's show business instincts. He's made a more modern version of the Napoli anthem, Usurdato Enamorato, the soldier in love, which isn't too popular, and during the match a banner was put up criticising his tenure, saying that it'd be better to be in Serie C than having a president who used the club for his own means. He's a film producer, and when I told the guys that I'd only seen one of his films, they all agreed it was better that way. Put it like this, Roberto Benigni shouldn't feel his position in Italian cinema is under threat by De Laurentiis's dire output. By the time kickoff rolled around, the Corva was packed and raring to go. There seemed to be relatively few Milanisti in the Gabbia, cage, 
which it literally is, whether to keep them as safe from the locals or vice versa, penning away fans in is extremely common here. But the why of that will become clear soon. The game started unusually quickly for a Serie A match, Napoli driving repeatedly at the Milan backline, trying to punch their way through. The Milan defence is, to put it mildly, not what it once was. But it was the visitors who scored first. The new boy, Adel Tarabt, picked up a pass and with the Napoli defenders backtracking, had an age to run at them and shoot into the far corner. 1-0 to the visitors, which went down about as well as a fart in a lift. The stench of disappointment quickly dissipated though, as only a few minutes later, Napoli's Inler scored up the other end with the help of a deflection. I'd been a bit concerned before the match, seeing the number of people around me and knowing the gravity of the match. I'm not entirely comfortable in large crowds, why I chose to embed myself in them for a season is a valid question, and having been in stands where people push and fall over when goals go in, I'd kind of been hoping that this had end as a low-scoring affair. I'm not a killjoy, but when you're standing on a seat and someone falls on you from behind, you don't have a whole load of control over where you go next. I have images of myself one day being carted out of a stadium with a mangled leg or worse, but hey, that's just my natural optimism kicking in. It's not that the glass is half empty in my eyes, rather that it's half full of urine. As it was, everyone went a bit crazy, and some people around me ended up on the ground. Like the big strong man that I am though, I anchored myself to Valentina's arm and rode out the storm. The rest of the match followed a pretty standard flow of Napoli players running at Milan's defence. There was more penetration that evening than could be found at one of Berlusconi's parties, and attack after attack presented Napoli with a sight of goal. It was their star summer signing Gonzalo Higain who got the other two goals, and by the end of the night the stadium announcer must have felt like a Shetland pony, so often had he and the crowd participated in the call and response of Announcer Gonzalo Stadium Higain, repeated five times, followed by announcer Gonzalo, crowd Higain. Milan's defence were truly abysmal, but just as bad as they were, the Partenopei's attacking was thrillingly good. With more clinical finishing, they could really put the hurt on the Rossoneri. With about 20 minutes left, Milan took off Balotelli, and his subsequent reaction made big news in the following days. Upon getting to the bench, Super Mario covered his face, and when he resurfaced, pictures would show that he had clearly been crying. His tears weren't immediately explained, birthing the theory that he'd been racially abused, but this was quickly put to bed, and I certainly hadn't heard or seen anything of the sort from where I was. Others postulated that after a week in which his paternity of a baby girl had been confirmed, these tears were simply a release of some kind of mental tension or exhaustion. I'm not a psychologist, but for what it's worth, my theory is that the dawning realisation that he played for a team that was doomed to mid-table mediocrity just got too much for him. Before the game had got underway, a helicopter had been hovering over the stadium. At the time, I figured that the pesky pork chopper was just there to get a better view of the match, but as I would read the next day, they were looking for another kind of action entirely. When the Milan fans arrived, a welcoming party of sorts was waiting and greeted their northern guests by throwing stones and firecrackers at them. The police were ready and dispersed the groups with tear gas so that they couldn't cause any more bother. No great damage was done beyond three policemen being lightly hurt and one of the cars being set on fire. 
My experience of a Neapolitan welcome was much warmer than this, and didn't involve having things thrown at me, thankfully. But then again, I wasn't wearing a Milan scarf. So, then, top tip. Don't wear a Milan scarf in Naples on the day of a Napoli versus Milan game. Not that that justifies the behaviour of the reception committee, mind. As I've already said, my experience was much better than that of the Milanisti. After the match, Nicola, Valentina and their friend Diego, one of many in Naples, unsurprisingly, given their famous ex-player, invited me to the birthday party of a friend of theirs. Everyone was really friendly and chatty, which was above and beyond the call of duty, given that they didn't know me from Adamo. Top marks for hospitality. By the end, though, having woken up at 6am to catch the train down, I was dead on my feet, and so finally crawled into my hotel at 3.30am for a few hours of shut-eye before the taking the long train back up north. Safe, satisfied, but enormously tired. Sola, non pensiamo con sola, caso pensa solamente a me. 